Our scripture this morning is taken from the book of First uh, Peter chapter three, uh, verses uh, twelve. Let me make sure I got that right. Thirteen through twenty-two. If you'd like to follow along as I read aloud, it's it's on your screen as I read it to you. Now. Who will harm you if you are eager to do what is good? But even if you do suffer for doing what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear. And do not be intimidated, but in your hearts sanctify Christ as Lord. Always be ready to make your defense to anyone who demands from you an accounting for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and reverence. Keep your conscience clear so that when you are maligned, those who abuse you for your good conduct in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good if suffering should be God's will than to suffer for doing evil. For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteousness, or the righteous for the unrighteous, in order to bring you to God, he was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which also he went and made a proclamation to the spirits in prison, who in former times did not obey when God waited patiently in the days of Noah, during the building of the ark, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were saved water. And baptism, which this prefigured now save you, saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, you see, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. To the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers made subject to him. May God bless the greeting of God's holy scripture. Amen. You know, as a parent, there's moments that you find yourself as a parent realizing that you get on your children's case sometimes for the wrong reason. Sometimes it's because uh, it's that conversation that you have with your children. You'd say, uh, you do this because I say so. Sometimes you do it because you want to do it for their safety. Sometimes you say things because uh, you try not to sound like your parent did. But really, at the end of the day, the goal for instruction and conversation with our family is not to make them suffer, but to keep them from suffering. You find in this section of 1 Peter that he carries this, this idea of righteous suffering throughout the whole book. Though he mentions it previously, we hear the same type of words and shaped in a similar way today. For example, he says, if you do suffer for doing what is right, 
The writer says, then you are blessed. The writer tacitly suggests that God may even be behind some of the suffering we face. He says, if it is better to suffer for doing good if suffering should be God's will. We see this again. He says, so he says, Jesus is portrayed then as the supreme model of righteous suffering for the Christian community. Jesus' suffering, as it turned out, was not just injustice and cruel death, but for the purpose of reconciling the world to God. You see, for us, baptism becomes that place where we mark in the path of this great model of suffering. And yet, at the same aspect, there is nothing suffering about being baptized. So I'm trying to figure this out. What what is any type of suffering that becomes endurable? Some people say that the, the suffering becomes endurable as to the why. Why it is it that you're suffering? Like, for example, Nietzsche says, if, if a person has a why for suffering, then they can bear with the how. I just have issues with this language. I have the issues that we suffer in the name of God. I think we suffer in the name of humanity because we are trying to live God lives. Did a suffering moment come from the logical consequences of our actions, or did it come to us uninvited? Knowing the difference determines the attitude for us as Christians. For example, three ways I want us to look at this. First, it says you are blessed. Well, the term blessed in Greek, is the word makarios, and it alludes to the wisdom of Psalms 1. For example, the phrase would be, good choices lead us into blessedness. It also alludes to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. He says, makarios, blessed are you when people revile and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Second, it says, be prepared. Now, this, would, this isn't like for me when I was growing up as a Boy Scout. That became the motto of my life where everything that we did, we had to be prepared for. And I've created some sort of OCD tendency in my head that says that if I'm going to go just wash my truck, I have to be prepared for anything that comes off of it. It's not that kind of be prepared. You see, in this moment, it's probably referring to some sort of legal proceeding. But probably more the demeanor and gentleness of speaking to the quality of hope that Christians possess. Always, dot, 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 everyone, suggests that this is a universal application. For example, we should be willing to share our faith as a part of our mission and not just when we're in the witness stand. To be prepared means I need to be ready for any moment to share my love of God through Jesus Christ. The third thing, 
suffering apply? For example, the pattern in verse, chapter 2, verses 18 through 25, is similar to what we just read, that the relationship of doulos, or slave, to the unbelieving master has become a kind of a paradigm of the relationship of Christian to unbelieving opponent. We start to see this where those that don't believe, they have suffering coming. I've even heard Christians say, well, if they had Jesus, they wouldn't be suffering as much. You see why I would have a problem with the word suffering? It implies that suffering then becomes something that we as all Christians have to, in order to endure the love of God, have to face. That we can't have a good life. It has to be bad always. One commentator says that there is a suffering satisfaction in the Christian DNA. For example, the commentator says, when well-doers suffer, they have the satisfaction of knowing that their suffering is not the moral consequence of their well-doing, even if it is their good actions which have brought their enemies' hostility down upon them. Indeed, it is in so as far that they can discern God's hand in their afflictions. It's in those moments that Christians have grounds for rejoicing. But you see, I still have a problem with this idea that in order to be a Christian, one must suffer. C.S. Lewis even says, we are not necessarily doubting that God will do the best for us. <laughs> we are wondering how painful the best will turn out to be. So what should the Christian response be to suffering? I worked with a pastor once who, uh, who told me the best way to keep your church clean is to not hire a good janitor, but to keep the doors locked. What he said to me was, uh, there won't be any dirt to clean up if no one ever enters through the doors. Now, some of us have learned that in that one way to keep floors clean is to take your shoes off at the door. When I was growing up, we lived in Japan for about three and a half years when my dad was stationed upon the USS White Plains. Uh, and, and we were out in, in the middle of nowhere, Yokosuka, Japan. And I, I always thought it was the coolest thing ever because when we'd walk into someone's house, we were, you know, we, we would take our shoes off and we would walk through the rest of the house in our socks. Now, as a 10-year-old boy, that's like the greatest thing of all time. Because then I could walk through the house without my shoes and socks on, and that meant that I could get dirt everywhere that I wanted to, and I didn't have to worry about my shoes holding me back, because you all know that if you take your shoes off, you run faster and you jump higher because they weigh you down. Everyone knows this. So I always thought that if I... If I kept my, I always thought that it was just to make little boys happy is the reason we took our shoes off when we got in the home. But really, it's, it's an aspect of honor and respect there. But some will even say to, here in the United States that it is just to keep your floors clean. I had a commentator write this last week that in 1886, Leo Tolstoy wrote a, a, 
a story called The Godfather. And no, it's not what you think. It's, it's not with uh, Al Pacino or Robert De Niro. It's not that Godfather. It's about a man who was trying to learn how to make up for some wrongdoing. Now, the man's never named. But the story begins with him looking for and finding his mysterious godfather. When the godson finds his godfather, he stays with him for a while, but breaks one of the rules of the house and is sent away. He is told to watch for clues about how to right this wrong on his journey home. One of the clues he gets is the scene he encounters in a small restaurant. While sitting there, he watches a waitress scrub a table over and over and over again. And when he asks her what she is doing, she looks at him blankly with one of those stupid question looks and points out what should have been obvious, that she is cleaning the table. He suggests that she might rinse her rag every once in a while. And without realizing how important that would be, she thanks him. And in short order, the table is clean and her work is complete. But you see, it wasn't until years later that the godson realizes the message of the rinsed rag for his own life's story. The kitchen floor doesn't get cleaned if you don't throw away the dirt. The garden will not be weed-free if you pull the weeds and simply just lay them down. Politicians cannot clear a tarnished record by trying to turn our attention to the good that they have supposedly done. And simply using the right detergent will not work either. Truth is, the rag must be rinsed to take away the dirt. In our text for today, Peter suggests that being forgiven of our sins is only one part of the process of purification. It's the most important part. And it's the most difficult part. It's also the part that God does for us so we don't have to wring our hands about the sin in our lives. It's implied, however, is it's the reminder that our sin won't go away if we simply just roll up our sleep. But see, God's forgiveness is only the first part of the process of becoming God's people. We must also work on a day-to-day basis to remove the sin from our lives so that it does not resurface. In some aspect, is the equivalent of taking off our shoes at the door so that there won't be as much dirt clean up. It's like planting ground cover to keep the weeds from springing up in a garden. It's the process of examining our lives to ensure that there is no appearance of evil in them. I have a friend of mine named Randy Quinn who is a minister and he he was in the Navy also and he talks about his time serving on a submarine and he tells this story that every day On every ship he was ever on, there's this daily routine of sweeping the decks. It's usually announced over the ship's announcing system. Sweepers, sweepers, man your brooms. Sweep all lower decks and passageways fore and aft. He remembers listening to the announcement on the submarine once, and and after he'd been out to sea for over a month, he says to himself, where did the dirt come from? 
after sweeping the decks every day for over a month and with no exposure to the outside environment, you would think the dirt was gone. You see, sin is like that in our lives. Dirt continues to find its way in even to the living spaces of a submarine hundreds of feet under the surface of the water. You see, God cleanses our lives, and try as we might to clean, live clean lives, we cannot avoid sin on our own. So God continues to offer cleansing and renewal. It isn't something we can simply just wring our hands about, nor is it something that we can simply roll up our sleeves about. Rather, this is something that invites us to raise our hands in praise, to clap our hands with gratitude, and to reach out our hands to others who are struggling. Now, for our congregation, that's a little scary to be sitting in our sanctuary with everybody here to raise our hands in praise, to clap our hands. Well, that would be something weird. But it's one of those things that shows and it feels an expression of God's love reaching out to us. Now, let's, let's face it. Our lives might not be squeaky clean but by the grace of God and the goodness of God, they have been made new. So first, ours is a just cause. We have a clear conscience, and we model responsible behavior like Jesus did with his life. That's the first sign. Second, we are not to be fearful the writer even draws from Isaiah to urge his hearers not to be intimidated by the leaders who act out of fear. Rather, we are committed to the Lord. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. Third, we should be standing ready to make defense. The word for defense is ap apol apologia, which is a technical term to describe the case the Christians made for themselves against their detractors. In essence, to always be prepared. And finally, we are to relate to our suffering to that of Christ. The suffering of Christ is the defining moment for all of us that proclaim Him as Savior. And especially those Christians that suffer unjustly. You see, the death of Christ served a greater longer-range purpose than Golgotha. It was a death of sin, a vicarious death. But for the Christian, suffering can become an occasion for transcending our own self-interest, acting on the behalf of others. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Amen.